When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise, such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Got something that might interest you. <laughs> Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me are my fellow hosts, Ariel. Hi there. And Daniel. Hi, everyone. (laughs) And today we're finishing up our conversation on Resident Evil Outbreak. File one. (laughs) So let's get started. First off, we have our characters. That's me first this time. Oh. Yeah. So I'm going to start with somebody known as Kevin Ryman. So we know a little bit of him from the last episode, but this will be more detail. Kevin Ryman was an officer of the Raccoon Police Department. He survived the Raccoon City incident, destruction incident in 1998, escaping on the 1st of October, along with seven other survivors he had met several days prior. So this is a little history before the Raccoon City incident. Sometime between 1996 and 1998, Kevin had applied for the department's Special Forces Unit, STARS, but failed the screening test twice, likely due to his carefree attitude. However, he seemed determined to study and apply once again. Kevin had previously placed in a marksman competition held by the Raccoon Police Department, having won a trophy from the event. Kevin's fellow officers, Chris Redfield and Forrest Spire, had also won these events. Kevin was a regular at Jack's Bar, often catching the game on TV, drinking to access and challenging anyone he could to a game of darts. Which we covered in all the uh, Easter eggs. (laughs) Oh yeah, avid dart player. (laughs) Kevin had been at the bar on the night of September 24th, 1998, as per usual, having a drink and watching the news report on the riot at the stadium earlier that day. So we've got just a little bit of during the outbreak. On September 24th, 1998, Kevin was at Jay's Bar along with other patrons when the T-Virus plagued Raccoon City at a critical level. The RPD became aware of the situation and prepared a citywide evacuation in conjunction with the Raccoon City Fire Department, RFD, (laughs) a roadblock to prevent an invasion at Jay's Bar and the surrounding locality would be assembled too late which ultimately led to Will, the working bartender, being assaulted and bitten by a zombie, forcing Kevin and other panicked patrons to flee before the bar was overrun. And after the Raccoon City destruction, Kevin is seen speaking with someone on a gas station payphone. He says that he has a fresh start with a new job in Miami and compliments the weather, saying that it should be fun. He then jumps on his motorbike and rides towards the horizon. So I got a little bit about his personality and relationships here. Kevin is an all-around likable guy. 
He is a dyed-in-the-wool optimist who doesn't dwell on petty matters. Kevin likes having a good time and often smokes and drinks. Sounds like he might get along with Leon. (laughs) Despite Kevin's general attitude, he does not like being emotional and can be impatient with others. Kevin is laid back and carefree to excess, often acting purely on impulse without any thought. His impulsive actions, such as running an extensive tab at Jack's bar and drinking at work. Leon. I don't think, I don't dr- think Leon ever drank at work. I just wanted to call him out because Ariel's giving me that look whenever time I bring Leon, so. <laughs> Having garnered him a somewhat negative reputation. Likewise, Kevin also proves to be fairly unreliable with basic tasks like cleaning and personal management. Kevin has a strong interest in sports and cars. He's an avid fan of baseball, basketball, football, and racing. Kevin appears to have had some knowledge regarding his then-soon-to-be co-worker, Leon Scott Kennedy. (laughs) But the extent of their relationship, or lack thereof, is unknown. He was close with his fellow officers at the precinct, namely Jean, Aaron, and Fred. Wow, I take one of those out and we have us. He also held Officer Marvin Reynaugh in high regard. And then all I have left is a little bit about his skills. Kevin possesses superior athletic abilities, being in top physical shape and able to fight in close quarters. A self-described hell of a shot, Kevin is also able to use handguns with heightened accuracy. Kevin has a fairly large and up-to-date knowledge of cars and is skilled enough to race competitively. And yet he doesn't. That is what I have on Kevin. If Kevin had chosen to do NASCAR instead of uh, being a RPD, I think he might have uh, had a better chance. Well, he's currently still alive, <laughs> according to everything <laughs> I've seen, but they didn't give me his blood type, so I cannot fully prove that. Because you don't have his blood type. That's <laughs> what I'm going to go with my, for my excuse. Oh, goodness. All right, who do we got next? Next, we have Mark Wilkins. His is a bit longer. Mark Wilkins is a former security guard who had worked in Raccoon City during the Raccoon City incident. Now living far away from the Doomtown, Mark remains a very caring individual who wants nothing more than to see his friends safe and his greatest wish is to live in peace with his family. During the outbreak, his fellow survivors could catch a faraway gleam in his eye as he wondered what became of his wife and son. In addition, the outbreak aroused dark memories from his war-torn past. As a Vietnam veteran, Mark has tasted the emptiness of war. By the age of 52, this grizzled Vietnam veteran was still stronger than most men half his age. So we'll go a little bit into his biography here. Mark is shown to get along with several of the other seven survivors he joins during the outbreak. Most notably, he gets along fairly well with David King, and both can work together without much disagreement. They even share an ending together in the first Outbreak game, as most of these characters do have ties to the second Outbreak games. He is shown to dislike Kevin quite a bit. I wonder why. Probably because of his drinking during work. (laughs) Going so far to ask, what is your purpose in life, Kevin? If they are together during the desperate time scenario, pairing them is often a fatal mistake, 
as Mark will often abandon Kevin even during combat situations. However, however, if Cindy is also a member of the Survivor's current party, Mark and Kevin will work together to protect her. So note to self, do not use Mark and Kevin together, people. George and Yoko have no problems with Mark, offering help and assistance when it's commonly needed. Mark, however, will remark on Yoko's quiet nature in some scenarios if they are paired together. Mark is shown to have one good friend before the outbreak begins, Bob, a fellow security guard working for the same firm. Mark is visibly worried about Bob when the ladder collapses onto the floor. He is displeased when Bob tries to put his own gun to his head, and following Bob's subsequent suicide, Mark cries out Bob's name in sorrow. Mark's treatment of strangers varies depending on who he's dealing with an outbreak. He seems to find the man that enters Jay's bar suspicious without knowing that the man is in fact a zombie. Because Resident Evil zombies didn't exist before the games. Possibly due to his age and experiences, Mark is quite stubborn as he refuses to use health items in his inventory immediately like the other survivors. <laughs> Which is helpful when you're hurting. Yes. Good AI. <laughs> Mark's service in the U.S. military has left an indemnable impression on him. He refers back to the Vietnam War in many of his innings. He will sometimes refer to his fellow survivors as his unit, platoon, or recon team. When calling other survivors over to him, he has a tendency to shout, Get over here, soldier! Many of his references to the war and thoughts on the situation in Raccoon City are told with the hints of pessimism and wariness. Despite eventually returning to his family and settling down, his sudden reemergence into combat made him jaded. After escaping Raccoon City, he thinks that he's seen things that are just as bad as his experience in Vietnam, realizing all of it will remain a part of who he is. And that is what I have on his relationships. Going to his biography here. Mark recalls in his ending to Wild Things that his father used to say that there wasn't a place left on Earth that wasn't or hasn't been a war-torn battlefield. He reflects that after being out of the service for so long, he has forgotten that little saying. Somewhere between the ages of 18 and 27, Mark was part of the U.S. invasion force sent into then South Vietnam to protect it from the North. How much time has passed since the end of Mark's service in the military is unclear, but decades later, Mark's dress uniform heavily resembled that of a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. By the 1990s, Mark had settled down into the American Midwest with his wife and son. His occupation by September 1998 was as a security card for a local firm called Scudum, which is actually the Latin word for shield. This job was flexible and allowed Mark to spend time with his family. Notably, his son enjoyed going to the elephant show at the Raccoon Zoo. Because we'll never hear about your son again there. Mark went to Jay's bar for a meal on September 24th, 1998 with his co-worker Bob when the T-virus infestation had reached a critical point. Noticing Bob was weak and listless, Mark became worried. As the zombie entered the bar, Bob lost consciousness and fell from his seat, causing Mark to rush to his aid. This left the bartender Will unprotected, at which point he quickly sustained a fatal neck injury from the zombie's hungry maw. Bringing his friend with him to the rooftop as part of the survivor's escape attempt, he soon learned of the reason for Bob's illness. He was becoming one of them. Bob told Mark that he feels the hunger. 
Knowing the danger he would be to his friend, Bob commits suicide by shooting himself in the head. Once Mark left Jay's bar and escaped to the streets of Raccoon City, he noticed the large fires and hordes of zombies on Main Street and was instantly reminded of burning flesh, a smell that he had hoped he would never experience again. This suggests Mark personally witnessed the use of napalm, a highly flammable substance that had been used during the conflict in Vietnam. Like Kevin and Jim, Mark is never scripted to die at any point in the two games, with the two bad endings of Decisions Decisions being the only exceptions. After the incident, Mark reunited with his wife and son, who had escaped the outbreak on their own and began living the calm and peaceful life that he felt he deserved. And that is what I have for Mark. So we have a Vietnam soldier having to relive essentially Vietnam all over again. Yes. I'm not quite sure Vietnam had zombies. <laughs> we don't know. We weren't there. <laughs> I mean, there's probably variants. Who's next? Next, we have David King. David King may have had a rough upbringing, evident by his adult aversion towards chains due to memories of being arrested in his youth. King was keen on survivalism and collected books detailing how to survive in various disaster situations. Along with this, King also developed skills in repairing firearms and had knowledge on how to use ordinary tools as weapons to the point of developing an ability to assess their practicality before using them. He kind of already sounds like a doomsday prepper. That's what it sounds like if he read every scenario and prepped. I wasn't ready for zombies, were you? <laughs> when a strain of T-Virus contaminated Raccoon City's water supply in 1998, King ignored the efforts of the Raccoon Police Department and Army to defend and evacuate the city as rioting began. He became aware of the true scope of the disaster while at Jack's Bar on Thursday, September 24th, when a bar worker was mauled by a rioter displaying symptoms of cannibal's disease. What is known of King's actions over the following week is uncertain, as the occupants of the bar are believed to have gone their separate ways. And that is what I have on David King, pretty short for him. So a survivalist who didn't hunker down, essentially, is what it sounds like to me. No, it sounds like he actually tried to help get a antivirus. So good, good job on his part. <laughs> All right. And last one I have before we move on to Ariel is Alyssa Ashcroft. She's an American investigative reporter. She was also a former resident of Raccoon City, as it no longer exists. Ashkoff was, was one of a handful of humans that escaped the city and worked to expose the Umbrella Corporation and its link to bioweapons in the city. Ashkoff is regarded for her ambition in getting to the bottom of the story as well as her vanity. So in her early career, in 1993, Ashcroft and her friend Kurt traveled into the Arclay Mountains to investigate rumors a pharmaceutical company was bribing a hospital into illegally testing drugs on patients. During this investigation, Kurt was attacked and partially eaten by Dorothy Lester, a hospital patient who had mutated after exposure to TJCCC203. To cover up the incident, Dr. Greg Mueller an umbrella researcher linked to the trial performed a procedure on her which suppressed memories of the event. 
For some time, she could only remember that there was an accident of some kind, which forced the hospital to close. All right. During the outbreak, on Tuesday, September 23rd, a modified E-strain contaminated Raccoon City's drinking water, causing a viral outbreak in the city. Of course, we already know that. Ashcroft was already infected and in the process of mutating on the evening of Wednesday, September 24th, when zombies attacked Jack's bar. During one of her attempts to break out of the city, Ashcroft made it into the mountains where she was lured by the hospital director, Dr. Al Lester, to the hospital where she discovered the truth about Umbrella and its conspiracy. Early hours of Thursday, the 1st of October, Ashcroft was finally able to escape the city moments before its destruction by experimental thermobaric missiles, though it is uncertain in what manner she escaped. It is understood, however, that she was successfully vaccinated for her Epsilon infection and did not mutate further. And after Raccoon City, in the aftermath of Raccoon City, Ashcroft quickly wrote of her experiences in the city in an attempt to destroy Umbrella USA with an article titled, What is a B.O.W.? Blowing the lid off this horrifying secret project. This article was dismissed as fantastical by the U.S. government, however, which instead made plans to cover up the existence of B.O.W.s for their own ends. In 2016, Ashcroft wrote an article for the Dolby Daily, a local newspaper based in Dolby Parish, Louisiana, discussing the mysterious disappearances in the town over the previous two years. And that is what I have on Alyssa. So what you're saying is she ties us into Resident Evil 7. That's what it sounds like to me. Which is cool because so the first thing about her is she's infected during three-fourths of the gameplay. Yes. And then she gets the antivirus everything's happy and then she tries to expose them and everybody goes ah whatever that's not true. So then she proceeds to go into Louisiana to become a reporter there and blows a little off yet another umbrella outbreak. Just can't get away from an umbrella. Mm-mm. So I guess I'm up. Yeah, it's your turn. <laughs> so I have Cindy Lennox. She is an American survivor of the 1998 Raccoon City destruction incident. Though trained as a waitress at Jack's Bar, Lennox's familiarity with first aid helped her survive the following week before her eventual escape on the morning of October 1st. From May 1998, Raccoon City was hit by a series of outbreaks of T-Virus, a military weapon engineered by the Umbrella Corporation which caused cannibal disease. Lennox went to work as usual that day with her co-worker Will. As violence escalated into rioting, the Raccoon Police Department began sealing off entire blocks of the city and evacuating people to the Raccoon Police Station. The bar was soon besieged by zombie rioters, forcing the bar's occupant to escape by another route. The bar was soon besieged by zombie rioters, forcing the bar's occupants to escape by another route. During this escape, the occupants went their separate ways. Alright, so not much about Cindy Lennox. Next, I have Yoko Suzuki. Yoko Suzuki is a former Umbrella employee and a survivor of the Raccoon City destruction incident. A self-proclaimed university student with good computer knowledge, Yoko has a quiet, reserved personality. However, the strength of her 
inquisitive mind emerges with a surprising toughness, making up for her absent-mindedness brought on by thinking too much analytically. Born in the United States, Yoko is the daughter of Japanese immigrants. As a teenager, Yoko was hired by Umbrella and worked at The Nest, headed by Dr. William Birkin. Her specific role in the company is unknown, but she was familiar with both the Hunter and Tyrant projects. In 1996, Yoko donated tissue cells for use in T-virus research. Over time, Yoko became a burden to the staff, with fellow employee Monica describing how she got scared and ran away. Dr. Greg Mueller operated on her to wipe her memory of working at the facility. It is possible, however, that Yoko continued to work for the company in a more legitimate capacity as she continued to wear an employee uniform for two years. On September 24th, Yoko entered Jack's bar as usual and began cutting her hair in the women's restroom. There, she was attacked by a zombie trying to grab her through a vent. Little is concrete about Yoko's exact whereabouts after her escape from Jack's bar. Some reports suggest that she ended up fleeing the bar only to find herself in the liquor-infested and burning Apple Inn with fellow survivors David King and Alyssa Ashcroft on the night of the 24th. What is known is that by September 27th, she found her way back to the underground laboratory with Alyssa and fellow survivor George Hamilton. Entering through the train tunnel for the Galaxy of 5000, she runs into Monica on the platform, who shoots at her, believing she too was after the G-Virus. During her experience of the disaster, Yoko slowly regained her memories of the event, and by the time the city was destroyed on October 1st, she understood everything. And that's what I have on Yoko. So she did survive. Yes. Next, I have Jim Chapman. He was a Kite Brothers Railway employee working at its South Raccoon Street station. Somewhat a coward, Jim had perfected the ability to play dead, which causes enemies to ignore him at the cost of an increased rate of infection. He carries a coin which he flips to make decisions. He was skilled at working out puzzles and could open complicated mechanisms that other survivors cannot access. Oh, so he was the uh, the guy we needed for all the Resident Evil games then? Yeah. Except he's a coward. <laughs> Jim is seen in Jay's bar doing a crossword puzzle when a zombie walks in and attacks Will the bartender. Finding himself caught in the Raccoon City destruction incident, he and the other survivors from Jay's bar begin to find a way out of the city. And let's see. Jim is a kind, friendly, and cheerful person, but is easily scared and sometimes gets stubborn and talks too much, easily annoying all but some of the group. He is a highly intelligent person who enjoys nothing more than sitting down to a difficult crossword puzzle or other thought-provoking challenges to pass the time. Although his manner of speech and choice of clothing gives others the impression he was raised in a rough environment. Jim got along great with Cindy Lennox and Mark Wilkins, 
but Alyssa Ashcroft, Yoko Suzuki, and David King dislike him due to his lack of bravery. Though he and Kevin Ryman seemed indifferent of each other, they share a bad ending in the decisions decisions scenario. Jim decides to remain in the city due to being infected with the virus and complains about being left in the doomed city with Kevin of all people. <laughs> wow, that's really harsh. You're the coward. You don't get to judge people. <laughs> True to his character, he backs off, but not before admitting he would have rather been stuck with some fine-looking woman. <laughs> when Thanatos reawakens, Jim reacts by hiding behind Kevin as the latter engages the tyrant while missiles rain down on the city. And that's what I have on Jim, not George. <laughs> well, sorry, not toasty. Next, I have George Hamilton. It doesn't have a blood type, Daniel, but it has his mass. I think they all have masses. Yeah, they all have masses. I was looking for a blood type. No blood types for you today, people. George Hamilton was a leading surgeon employed at Raccoon General Hospital. Dr. Hamilton attained his doctorate alongside Peter Jenkins, where they studied virology though the two were not particularly close. While working as a surgeon at Raccoon General Hospital, Dr. Hamilton was also a member of the charity group, the Raccoon Volunteer Corps. By 1998, Dr. Hamilton and his wife were divorced. In mid-September 1998, the Raccoon General Hospital experienced an influx of patients suffering a strange disease later known to be T-virus infection. Over the next few days, he was kept on the move, escaping the various mutants in the city while struggling to understand just what happened. In the early hours of October 1st, he hid in a shelter where he took note of a letter from Dr. Jenkins, who, by then, was working as a virologist at Raccoon General. There, he assisted in the production of Daylight, a treatment for T-virus infection, and used one sample on himself and kept another to take to the outside world. Dr. Hamilton was connected with university laboratories following the outbreak and may have been involved in the reproduction of daylight. Although George lives in relative luxury due to his highly demanding occupation, he has a naturally active lifestyle and feels much more relaxed when camping or hiking. It is believed that he sometimes romanticized his profession, which more than likely led to the divorce of his wife. However, judging from the quote, you're worse than my ex-wife, it is implied that George's ex-wife did something to cause the divorce. His special ability is making new medicines from herbs found in the field using his medical kit, which is in his inventory at the start of each scenario. Often, George is paired up with Cindy Lennox, the blonde waitress in the Outbreak series. This is due to the fact that in one of the possible endings for the game, for the, George and Cindy are the only couple ending to be shown. It could also be noted that the two speak to each other with a kinder disposition when compared to speech with other characters. The main thing they seem to have in common is that they need herbs to put their special abilities to use. In the game, he also has a positive relation value with Kevin Ryman. However, he doesn't have a good relationship with Alyssa Ashcroft, 
due to her stubbornness and pushiness. He is also a poor match for Yoko Suzuki, as for unknown reasons, he dislikes her. However, if Yoko rescues him from near death or carries him in danger status, he'll start following her. And that is the end of the characters. So that is a lot of information to take on for these characters. But if we want to tie it into Resident Evil canon, then realistically, there's only two characters out of this whole thing that really, well, I'd say three that matter. We've got Yoko, who testifies against Umbrella at the end of everything. We have George, who is a big help into creating the, or recreating the Daylight Cure. And we have Alyssa, who goes on to seemingly report about the incident happening in Louisiana. Yes. We don't talk about that game. (laughs) At least not yet. (laughs) So if you're looking to keep track about how everything up to this point is canon, there's your answer. But we'll go from that to jumping into our (laughs) mid-break. Well, here we are in the middle of the show. And Daniel, what have you brought for us today? Oh, me first this time. I think I was first last time, maybe. All right, so keeping with the Resident Evil outbreak, I have found a shirt on redbubble.com. So if you go to redbubble.com and you look up Resident Evil outbreak for apparel, there is a shirt that has two characters from Outbreak in the foreground and then it looks like a sign of raccoon falling in the background with fire around it. Ooh. Yeah. And it lists, says Resident Evil Outbreak. The price of it is twenty fifty nine. It's an odd price. That's what I thought. Potentially before shipping. So maybe shipping it'll be like three eighty three or something. But... <laughs> But you can find it on redbubble.com, which we will have that linked in the Discord, the Twitter, and in the show notes if you would like to purchase that. And if you want to send one to me, my size is medium. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Daniel. Wow. Oh, gosh. All right, Ariel, what'd you bring for us today? Oh, I read another article. Uh Uh-oh. I I read a lot of articles. This one is from comicbook.com. And the title of the article is Resident Evil Director Reveals Character That Didn't Make It Into the Movie. Ooh, which one didn't make it in? So, if you'll listen, stay tuned, because I'm about to say it. Ooh. When Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City releases Wednesday. This will be released. It'll have released the day before us. (laughs) Woohoo. The film will feature a number of familiar faces, including characters like Chris Redfield, Jill Valentine, and Leon S. Kennedy. While director Johannes Roberts was able to fit a number of iconic characters from the first two games, there is one that won't be appearing. And actually, I'm a little sad about this one. It's Mr. X. Oh, really? Yep. kind of a disappointment. Yeah, Roberts revealed that he really wanted to include the character, but couldn't find a way to make it work in the movie. And to be honest, I can respect that. Because a lot of times 
directors will just throw characters or creatures or whatever in there. It doesn't really make sense just to throw it in there because it's an iconic character or creature. So I can respect the fact that he didn't put it in there because there was no way to make it fit. Yeah, I can see that. I can respect that. I mean, you don't want to go jamming things in like they did the original Resident Evil movies. Uh, yeah, they did, which we'll discuss that later on in the <laughs> podcast. But yeah, they did shove a lot of characters in an episode. and So yeah, I can respect that. However, I'm still upset because as I said in the previous episode, Mr. X is my favorite. So, I thought you were going to say Rebecca because so far I have not seen her listed on IMDb or nothing for Rebecca. Bum, bum, bum. Because she would be, if you go with the, by one, you know, she makes a cameo in one. Mm-hmm. I mean, she does, yeah. So that's so why I'm like, where's Rebecca? Maybe it's a surprise. Ooh. Maybe she makes a cameo in the movie. Oh, maybe IMDb is just not updated. But that's why at first I thought you were going to say, "I'm like, no, no, Rebecca." We do know, and IMDb has kept secrets from us before with other movies. Like until the movie is officially released, then they'll drop things. I'm sorry, Daniel, to burst your bubble, but I really doubt she's in the movie. Hey. You gave me hope because your <laughs> thing just said Mr. X. And then I crushed it. No, no, because <laughs> the movie's not out yet. We'll find out Wednesday. Yeah, we'll find out Wednesday. But by the time this airs, we'll already know. Dun, dun, dun. Right. So this week I have brought something a little different. So if you go to shopcocolero.com, um, and it's already linked in the Discord, and we'll put it in the show notes. But they are doing a Resident Evil Infinite Darkness crossover with their drink. Um, this drink is a... Here, we'll just, we'll just read it from the website here. It is a 29% alcohol content. We'll start with that. Um, mid-strength spirit and is extremely versatile for mixed drinks. Um, the bottle's really cool. It's green. Shows uh, shows a DNA strand like the original vials did uh, at the top of the bottle. And it comes with a very cool-looking Resident Evil logo on the bottle. So if you drink it, you'll turn into a zombie. I hope not. <laughs> you can go to their website and order yours for $34.99. It's more expensive than the t-shirt. <laughs> but you already have one coming. A t-shirt? No. A bottle of alcohol. My size drink. is not medium. <laughs> oh, goodness. So that's all I have for today's mid-break. And with that, I say, let's jump into the end of the episode. After I say, please drink responsibly. I mean, you do have to say that. <laughs> all right so here we are at the end of the episode the last thing to cover is bow's unlockables so let's have us some bow's all right we will start with the new bow's so i have the scissor tails at first Ooh. 
So those are an irregular mutant that seems to be a mutated earwig. Another thing Ariel would love. I, okay. An insect. I really hate earwigs. I really do. They are freaking gross. So you would love the scissor tail. No, I didn't, and I don't. Don't worry, it was accidental in purpose. It It was accidentally on purpose? Yes. (laughs) Just for Ariel, they knew she was going to play the game. It uses its newfound abilities granted to it by the T-Virus to hunt prey and induce bleeding and, in some cases, poisoning. There are two kinds of scissor tail and both seem to have different capabilities. The brown scissor tail is the largest of the two types and will induce bleeding upon unsuspecting victims. The blue scissor tail, while slightly smaller, will induce poison and bleeding on its victims. Both types do this either by stabbing their prey using their sharp tails or tackling them and biting their prey. Both types of scissor tails have mutated to the point where they have grown out of their wings. The wings, while present, are incapable of flight as they did not scale well with scissor tails' mass increase and are seemingly vestigial now. When they feel threatened, they will burrow underground and attempt to escape their attacker. That's what I have on the biology of the scissor tail. So more bugs. Yep, just for Ariel. So next, I will do the Hunter R, which is another new one. The Hunter R series was noticeably an ectothermic species, being cold-blooded and so dependent largely on the climate to assist in their meta- in their metabolism. This can be seen in how they begin brumating in nest when the temperature was lowered, entering dormancy as frost gathered on their bodies. When the temperature on the level increased, they woke up and shattered the frost covering them. It is also understood that the species was smaller and weaker than the other other hunter products, though made up for it in its pack instinct. So it's a better pack hunter, but it's a little weaker. But, you know, strength in numbers. That's what they say, right? Oh my god. (laughs) Can you imagine being attacked by a group of those things? I mean, as long as they're a lot like goblin-sized, that would be fine. I mean, Ariel's over here shaking her head. No, 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 no. That's what I have on the new ones. Ariel? I have no bugs. No bugs! So I'm going to talk about the suspended. Ooh, yes. So the suspended is the name given to an unnamed civilian who was infected with the T-virus during the... Raccoon City Destruction Incident. Following her zombification within the Apple Inn, she underwent a freak mutation into a form similar to liquors, but retaining a more human form. She was killed by a group of outbreak survivors in the Apple Inn Hotel. And I just want to say, very creepy. Uh, yeah. Disgustingly creepy. (laughs) The suspended is altogether a variant of liquor, a zombie mutated by a modified E-strain. However, it is distinguished from others by its retention of its human traits, such as eyes, hair, and lack of exposed brain tissue. Like the other liquors, suspended is still capable of climbing and hanging on ceilings as a means of hunting, and is still able to use its tongue as a weapon. In terms of strength, suspended actually excels that of normal liquors. That's terrifying. 
I mean, you think about how strong liquors are to amplify that. That's mm-mm. nope. <laughs> and the fact that yeah, they can still climb and yeah, nope, nope. So the last one I'm going to talk about is Thanatos. Thanatos was a unique tyrant specimen created by Rogue Umbrella Corporation scientist Greg Mueller. During the Raccoon City destruction incident, Greg released Thanatos in defiance of Umbrella's mass production of tyrants. As with other BOWs, Thanatos was named after an entity in Greco-Roman mythology, in this case the Greek god of death. Ooh. Thanatos is a one-of-a-kind offshoot of the Tyrant Project, derived from research into the T-103 series. The test subject, upon exposure to Epsilon, was augmented to develop superhuman strength and agility, and its only known combat against trained military professionals, Thanatos demonstrated a resistance to small firearms and a considerably increased running speed and was capable of killing with blows to the head and impalement with its claw. Thanatos' super tyrant mutation increased its height to over 12 feet tall and developed powerful muscles to allow it to jump high into the air. Thanatos did, however, demonstrate two weaknesses in its activity. Firstly, it was sensitive to jolts of electricity and could be knocked out. As with other tyrants, its grafted animal heart was left exposed, though until its super tyrant mutation, this was covered by a metal casing. And that's what I have on Thanatos. So let's take a uh, big tyrant and make it scarier is what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, so what Resident Evil does. Mm-hmm. Experiments, experiments, experiments. Of course. Right, well, with all our BOWs and characters out of the way, it's time to talk our unlockables. So for this one, there's actually a ton of stuff to unlock. Um, so we're not going to go super in-depth in it, but we are going to talk about it kind of like an, a general overview. The first thing you get to unlock is all characters' uh, CG pictures or their character collages. You can defeat any three scenarios with the individual, spend 500 points, and unlock their collage. Um, each character also has an additional costume you can get and it's by acquiring their SP items in-game. There's also a different uh, variation of voices of each character you can get. Um, there's different, uh, like their ending movies, their Outbreak ending movies, and there's BGM you can unlock. But some of the costumes you can unlock is Alyssa's red dress outfit, or her street scene outfit, Cindy's bunny costume, or Cindy Costume B. You can also unlock Danny and Danny's alternate costume. You can unlock Frank as a character, Gil as a character, and Gil alternate costume. You can unlock Greg. You can unlock Monica. You can unlock Mr. Color. 
Um, and you can unlock nurses, police officers, firefighters, and Will. So, and Yoko has two different costumes as well. Yoko's costume has B and C. Um, but from there, the other unlockables, these are pretty cool. Aside from unlocking different difficulty modes, the last thing you can unlock is no partner mode. So that's it for the unlockables that you can get with points and things uh, in the game. But through searching, I did find a couple more Easter eggs. So in you can actually crack the screen in below freezing point scenario. If you go to B... 5F emergency passage collect the shotgun at the end of the tunnel near the vent proceed forward to a small vent and stand there aim the shotgun at the TV screen tap down button quickly then fire before your shotgun aim completely downward so that means you have to shoot before the shotgun goes all the way down the bullet holes will appear on your TV screen so that's pretty cool um, you can see Bob is a zombie. You have to be on very hard difficulty uh, and you have to carry him to the roof, but there has to be a mark type in your group. Instead of you seeing him commit suicide, he'll become a zombie and try to kill you. You can see so Yoko is a zombie as well when playing below freezing point as any character except Yoko. After the Monica cutscene and pick your routes, you might see Yoko as a zombie. On easy, you can definitely see Yoko as a zombie on the B7F laboratory. On normal, you can see her as a zombie in the chemical storage room. And on hard, you can see her on B6F break room. On very hard, you can see her in the chemical room as well. And the last thing is to unlock everything in collections mode, you will have to have outbreak file number two. You can use the conversion data conversion mode to unlock absolutely everything in the game. Just super easy. <laughs> so that is what we have for all the unlockables and a couple more little Easter eggs. Woo. So yeah, that's all of our unlockables and a few little extra Easter eggs. But it's Thanksgiving, not Easter. Ha ha ha. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be Thanksgiving when this episode airs, won't it? Yep. Well, to from us to you, happy Thanksgiving. Eat all the food. All of it. Just make sure it's not infected with T-virus. Yeah, you should probably check your food beforehand. Just, if you think it's infected, just don't eat it and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> you get insects that are infected. Oh, and on that note, uh, to everyone listening, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye there. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Resident Evil Lurecast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a comment and a review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RE Lurecast on Twitter. Till next time, stay safe out there. And remember, we might have something that might interest you, stranger. 
What up to Night City? You're listening to N54 Radio. This is DJ Sparks bringing you a new hit show from Night City, Cyberpunk, a cyberpunk red live play podcast. Listen as a ragtag group slamming on the corpos. Survive the streets and try to keep from being flatlined. You can tune in on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. DJ Sparks out! Hello, this is Charlie Transmutation coming to you with another PSA announcement. No, Charlie, this is a commercial. What? Crap. Nobody told me that. Well, what are you supposed to do in this thing anyway? Well, Charlie, I'm glad you asked. This is the part where we introduce our new homebrew 5e D&D podcast, The Fumbling Four and the Almighty Crit, where we explore the homebrew world of Altaris using homebrew rules and homebrew material from the Dungeon Master's Guild. Eh, sounds boring. I'm out of here. See you later, Charlie. We hope to have you guys come check us out soon. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts.